Good morning, everybody. So, it may come as a surprise to some of you that I'm standing behind the pulpit today, because honestly, it's a bit of a surprise to myself. Uh, public speaking has always been one of those things that stirs up a great deal of anxiety within me, and certainly uh, this is no exception today. I can't help but stand here and uh, think to myself, who am I worthy to stand before you and present the Word of God to you today? Honestly, I feel a bit like Moses. Um, We've been talking through the book of Exodus in Sunday school a lot about Moses and how God appeared to him in the burning bush and told Moses that he would be the one to lead the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. To which Moses responded, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? But as the Lord responded to Moses, so I believe he also responds to me this morning, but I will be with you. And later, whenever God tasked Moses with another thing, he responded that he's not eloquent in speech, but slow of speech and tongue, and likewise, I feel a lot with Moses this morning, but as the Lord responded to Moses, I know he responds to me. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So this morning I'm resting not in my own eloquence, in my own ability to speak, but I'm resting wholly and completely in God's grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity this morning. I thank you for allowing me to come before your church, Lord, and preach your word. Lord, it's a humbling experience, but I thank you for it, Father. I pray that the words that I speak would not be of my own, but be of you, that I can lay them on the table of your sheep, And that they can feast and be wholly and completely satisfied in the riches of your glory. Amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Jude again. Last week, Brad discussed the urgency of Jude's epistle. As we read, Jude had intentions of writing about common salvation. Salvation that was shared among the brothers and sisters of Christ. But... This changed. Out of a sense of urgency, he was redirected. So the question is, what caused this sense of urgency that caused him to be redirected? Now, it's possible this could have been merely out of an internal conviction by the Holy Spirit, that he was convicted, that he needed to speak of something else, and then he changed his message. But I think if we look at the context of the passage, we can see that there was something going on in the church at the time that there was actually a false teaching that was being taught that led to an internal conviction of the Spirit, which then led Jude to completely change his letter. So we're going to dig into the passage and look at that this morning. We're looking at Jude 1, verses 5 through 9. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, 
he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so Jude begins in verse 5 with the following. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. This implies something, right? This implies that at one point in time, the recipients of this message had been taught and completely understood something and now have forgotten it and are in need of being reminded. So what is it that they're in need of being reminded about? Because honestly, Jude doesn't say it blatantly here. But if we dig into the surrounding passages, the three examples that he gives us that are to follow we can get an idea of what direction he was trying to take and what he was trying to remind the recipients of this passage about. So the first one is right here in verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Does anybody remember that? Jesus saving people out of the land of Egypt? Or destroying those who did not believe? Did Jesus do that? Does that sound like Jesus? So in this passage, we're actually talking about Yahweh, but Jude is making the connection to Jesus here. He is putting together that Jesus and God the Father are one and the same. And that's what we're talking about here. We're not necessarily talking about Jesus in the New Testament. We're talking about God the Father or Yahweh in the Old Testament. And we're talking about how he led the people, the Israelites, out of the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt and then afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's kind of unclear. I mean, there was a lot of destruction in the Old Testament, but um, this in particular is a reference to a story about the Israelite spies in the book of Numbers. Essentially what was going on here Um, The Israelites had conquered many different cities, and they were approaching the land of Canaan. And the Lord approached Aaron and Moses and said, You need to send out some spies from within you to go into the land of Canaan to scope out this land. And the purpose of scoping out this land were several things. First of all, they were trying to determine if it was a fruitful land. The Lord had promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, so they were going in to see if there was fruit. Secondly, they were going to see if the city was well fortified and if the inhabitants were strong or if they were weak. Well, Moses and Aaron went forth. They sent out the spies, and the spies came back, and there was good news. The land was very fruitful. It was full of fruit. But the spies returned fearful and hopeless. They were fearful and hopeless because the cities were well fortified, and the occupants were very strong. They were actually giants. They told Moses and Aaron whenever they returned that they felt like grasshoppers in the presence of these people. And they were completely void of all hope. And this attitude was contagious. And it spread to the other Israelites. And they said, woe are we. 
and they wanted to return to the land of Egypt, and they had given up all hope in the God that they served. The only exception to this was Caleb of the tribe of Judah, who had faith in God, faith that had been built upon. But these other Israelites, they upset God in their lack of faith. They upset God because the God that they served was the same God who performed all of the miracles in Egypt, who sent forth all of these plagues to rescue them out of the land. It's the same God who parted the Red Sea so that they can walk across on dry ground. It's the same God who made manna fall from the sky to feed their hungry stomachs and made water burst forth from a rock to quench their thirst. And it made the Lord angry. And the Lord was ready to desert his people, but Moses prayed for them that the Lord would not do this. And the Lord changed his mind. I say that in quotes. We won't get into that rabbit hole. But the Lord changed his mind and did not desert his people, but he said that all of the descendants of these people who were fearful, who did not have hope in God, these descendants would never inherit the promised land, that only Caleb and his descendants would inherit the promised land. So all of the others would wander in the desert for 40 years and die. And that is what this passage is referencing. They were destroyed, essentially, by wandering around in the desert. So what do we see in this passage? There's a trend in this passage that I want you to look for in the following two examples. We see the sinful actions of the Israelites and their lack of faith in God, and then God's respective punishment for those actions. Okay, let's go to the next example in verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we're talking about angels now, we're not talking about people, but what angels are we talking about here? This is a reference to the fallen angels who took sides with Satan. Satan was the most powerful of the angels, and he, for some reason, decided that he could be more powerful than God and rebelled. He got together all of these other angels, and they they rebelled against God. They ended up losing this battle. But nonetheless, what we see here is their sinful actions. They were not okay with their position of authority that had been given to them by the Lord, but thought themselves greater, right? So out of sin, they tried to elevate themselves, and then you have the result of their actions. Sinful actions, God's punishment. Their punishment is they're kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Next one, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So this is a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. These were cities that were completely devoid of God, lost in sin, indulging in passions of the flesh. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, all the various types of sexual immorality, and things that probably aren't even mentioned in the Bible. These were bad cities that were completely enthralled in sin. So we see their sin here and God's respective punishment. His respective punishment is they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. 
Now they undergo a punishment of eternal fire. They also underwent a punishment of physical fire whenever the Lord rained fire down from heaven and destroyed the cities, right? So we kind of have a two-tier example of God's punishment here. But nonetheless, as we look at this with the other two passages, we see sinful actions, God's respective punishment. So what exactly is Jude getting at? We see sinful actions and God's respective punishment in all three of these examples. I believe that Jude was dispelling the belief that we can sin abundantly because we are forgiven. And you can see that in verse 4 here that Brad talked about last week. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They're perverting the grace of God or turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And I think Brad defined licentiousness last week, but I went ahead and got the definition for you again this week. It's kind of an easy one to forget. So the definition of licentiousness is malicious disregard or transgression of laws, rules, or moral norms. So if we take that out and we plug it in, in this highlighted part of this passage, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, right? They turn the grace of our God into a disregard or transgression of laws, rules, or moral norms. They take the grace of God that covers our sins, and they decide that they're going to sin anyway. They're going to transgress the laws that the Lord has put forth. They were completely disregarding the consequences of their actions. Jude was telling the audience that continuing in unrepentant sin after salvation is not and never will be okay. Now, this is crucially important that we all understand if we rest our salvation in Christ, He has wholly and completely paid for our sins. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we are forgiven. But our sins come at a price. It's our white lies, our lustful glances, our unloving, hateful hearts that serve as the hammer that drove the nails into Jesus before he hung on the cross. Let's take a look at a passage from the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews put it well when speaking of deliberate, unrepentant sin after redemption. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay. 
Let me find the right page here. So, what is the penalty, according to this passage, of violating the law of Moses? Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the law of Moses we're talking about. It's God's law, yes, written on stone tablets. But anyone who sets that aside is to die without mercy. So what if we set aside the grace of our Lord, God's only Son, who died on the cross and shed his blood so that we might live? What if we set that aside? What do you think should be the result there? We are trampling our Savior underfoot. Paul says, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? What's the response? May it never be. This is the reason Jude changed his message. He saw this lie infiltrating the church and he found it 100% necessary to correct it, to get it out of the church, to keep the church rooted in the truth. Jude is a member of the Bride of Christ and we are all members of the Bride of Christ and we are all responsible to do this very thing. We have to reject false teachings that are creeping into our church. And in order to do that, we have to know our Bibles. And in order to know our Bibles, we have to read our Bibles. We have to be aware that these false teachers exist, whether intentionally malicious or not, there are lies that are creeping into our church. And some of them are intentionally malicious in our cities and towns seeking to destroy the church, and we have to know that they are real and they exist. So what do we do about it? Fortunately, Jude gives us the following verses so that we can identify them, so we can see who they are, what they do, and we can see them coming. Let's look at verse 8. Yet in like manner these people, now we're talking about these false teachers, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. I have highlighted here relying on their dreams. This is a subtle yet important excerpt that explains what these people are doing in the midst of their sinning. Their sinning being defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones. What are they doing right before that? Relying on their dreams. But what does this mean? Were they actually having dreams? Why are they considered dreamers? Opinions vary on this passage in the theological community. But more than likely, I believe that this shows that their beliefs are weak, they're hollow, and they're frail. They are fabricated figments of their imaginations, ungrounded in truth, unrooted in proof. They're mere fantasies created by these people to justify their own wrongdoings. And all the while, they are asleep. This dreaming that I'm speaking of is the tendency of our sinful nature to justify itself. And when left unfettered, 
The result is a wildly out-of-control state of mind where we begin to take lies and intersperse them with our biblical truths to masquerade our sins as acceptable. Let me say that one more time. When this dreaming is left unfettered, the result is a wildly out-of-control state of mind where we begin to take the lies and intersperse them with our biblical truths to masquerade our sins as acceptable. This is what Jude gives us to identify these false teachers. These people are dangerous. And they're dangerous because if it were not for the grace of God, we are exactly like them. Stay guarded in the truth and God's spirit will grant you wisdom. Let's go on into the latter parts of verse 8 here. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. The flesh here, defiling the flesh, the flesh is another word for human nature. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah, these people warp and twist human nature as God created it. They profane the natural establishments set forth by our Creator, who created one man to be with one woman in holy union. They reject all authority. No person and no thing is their superior, so much so that they have become a God to themselves, refusing to be subject to the natural order as God has ordained it. They blaspheme the glorious ones. What does that mean? Blaspheme the glorious ones. That's a strange passage. The glorious ones here are referencing angelic beings, heavenly beings. And we see that as we follow up in the next passage speaking about Michael, the archangel, and him talking to Satan. So the glorious ones are Angels, essentially, who have been put in a higher place of authority than human beings. But these people, they're too arrogant to see their own weakness. So they blaspheme these heavenly beings as if they're greater than them. We see in Hebrews 2.7, the quote that says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. This passage is in reference to Jesus Christ. You made, him, you made him, you made Jesus Christ for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. If Jesus Christ is for a little while lower than the angels, then where are we? I know I'm not anywhere close to Jesus Christ, but these people think themselves above the angels. They claim superiority, but they are in shackles and chains, in bondage to their own sin. Verse 9. In contrast to their inflated egos and haughty attitudes, this verse gives a depiction of what humility looks like among the angels. It says this, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This is kind of different. 
don't know if you guys have ever actually read this story in the Bible because it's not really in the Bible. There's a little bit of reference to it in Deuteronomy, but this passage was quoted from a book called The Assumption of Moses, which did not get adopted into the canon. But nonetheless, this passage is in the Bible, so we can be sure that this passage is true. But this was in regards to the secret nature of Moses' burial. So, Michael and Satan were arguing about the secret nature of the burial. The reason for this secrecy, why did Moses' body have to be buried in secret and the location have to be concealed from the Israelites, that can only be speculated because it's not really said in the Bible why. Some believe that if the Israelites knew where Moses was buried, then they could find his body and they would have issues with worshiping his body in idolatry. But the Israelites never had issues with idolatry, right? You guys remember the golden calf, you know? So that's what a lot of scholars believe, that that was the reason for the secret burial. But like I said, we can only speculate. So Satan tried to thwart the secrecy of this burial, probably to lead to idolatry or some other sin. But Michael resisted Satan and firmly carried out God's purpose. He could have easily elevated himself above his place of authority. Because Michael and Satan have a bit of a history. In Revelation, we read about how Michael led an army of angels to kick Satan out of heaven and was successful in those efforts. So if anybody was to have bragging rights over Satan, Michael would be the one to do it. But look at what he said here. The Lord rebuke you. He speaks out of a state of humility. Even though he very easily could have blasphemed Satan, he allows the Lord to do the rebuking. So all of this to say that this is a characteristic that the false teachers do not have. Humility. And we should go through here. Uh, on the next slide, I have a recap of all of the things that these false teachers are. These false teachers are asleep. They're asleep to the things of heaven, the things of reality as we know them. They're lost in this world and they can't see. They are unrooted in the truth. They rely on the ideas of their mind, the fantasies that they fabricate. They are always justifying their sin, finding a way to warp morality and ethics of this world to match what they desire as sinful creatures. They are a God to themselves, refusing to be in subordinates to anyone else, inflated, haughty, egotistical. They are blasphemous against the establishments of God, not respecting the natural order and the place in which they have been put by God himself. They are enslaved to their sin. They are malicious. And they are fearlessly in opposition to God with no fear or respect to him whatsoever. And this is how we can identify them. But I think also as we look out for these false teachers, we should pray for ourselves, pray for our church, that in direct contrast to that, that the Lord will keep us the opposite things. 
that he would keep us awake to his word, to the things of heaven, and not put to sleep through the things of this world. Pray that he would keep us rooted in the truth, not rooted in our own subjective ideas of what right and wrong are, but in the objective truths of the Bible. Pray that he would keep us aware of our sinful nature, that we not be haughty and egotistical, that we realize where we actually stand or sit or lie very low. Pray that he would keep us a servant to the one true God, not a God to ourselves. Pray that we would be joyfully subject to God's establishments in placing us where we are and giving us limits in making us not God, to point us to the one true God. Pray that he would keep us more than conquerors, as Paul says, of our sin in Christ. That he would keep us ready to defend the truth and confidently held in the arms of God. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word this morning. I thank you for Jude and for the book that you've given us to read, Father. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be awake, help us to be awake to the reality that there are false teachers out there, there are false teachings being taught, and I pray that you would keep us rooted in your word, rooted in your truth, and ready to defend it, Father God. I pray that you would keep us confidently held in your arms, that you would keep us held close to you, that you could help us not to resemble these false teachers, but to resemble your son. Please be with us all as we go throughout this week, Father, and help us to remember that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.